Um, for me, I need to be reminded on a very regular basis of what um, Christ has done for me and um, how I can live for Him. And, uh, you know, we, we look back on times in our lives when we've had a conversion, maybe a reconversion experience, and um, we praise God for those experiences, but they really are daily experiences that we need to have, right? And so for me, it's just a, a constant need to be reminded of what God has done. So we're going to start tonight with some pretty basic things. Um, but we're going to start um, and just see where this week takes us, I guess. Um, we're going to see some of the questions that come in. We're, gonna, we're going to spend some time tomorrow morning. We're going to be looking at uh, where we are in the stream of time right now, just in a very simple, practical way. We're not going to be going deep into, into Bible prophecy, but just sort of, I think most of us have some idea of, of uh, prophecy and end-time events, and just sort of take a look at where we're at and if it's reasonable to conclude that we are living near the end of time. And if it is, in fact, reasonable to conclude that we are living near the end of time, then it's reasonable for us to be living in such a way um, that we're ready for Jesus to come. And um, the, the Lord has given us a special message as a people intended to prepare a people to be ready for Jesus' coming. And, um, you know, there, there are many gospels out there. There's a lot of good news out there. And, and there's the basic elements of the cross and Christ that, that saves us. And, but Adventism is brought upon the scene of action at this time for the specific purpose of sharing an end-time message that will prepare people for Jesus' second coming. And um, so we're going to be spending some time looking at that. Um, after tomorrow morning, I want to spend our mornings looking at the life of Abraham. I just, I've always inspired when I study the, the lives of Bible characters, and I see how they lived. And I believe that, um, just to give you a little bit of a preview without going too far into my, the rest of the week tonight, um, I believe that Abraham lived a life that was very unique. Um, he was called by God to live a life that nobody else could understand. Uh, a, a singular experience on planet Earth is what Abraham had. He was called the friend of God. I mean, he had, a, he had an amazing relationship, personal relationship with God. And um, his life of faith was so impressive that, that Paul argues that he became not just the father of, of the Jewish nation and the father of many nations, but he became the father of all who would believe and the faithful of all ages. And if it's true... Um, if it's true, then it ought to teach us something about how we live in these last days. So that's sort of what our plan is for the uh, morning meetings. Uh, tonight we're going to be looking particularly at the, um, at the uh, topic of um, the need to know, just basic spirituality we're going to be covering tonight. And um, I think that as we begin this, I'd just like to ask you to bow your heads with me for an additional word of prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you that we have this time to gather together. Lord, I know much, much prayer, much effort has gone into making this camp meeting a reality. It's not just by chance that we're here tonight. Your Holy Spirit has moved upon hearts, has spoken to us, has brought us here. Your angels have guided and protected us as we've made our way here. And Father, it's, it's because you have a special plan for each one of us during these days together. Tonight, we want, we want to experience part of that plan. We just want to ask that your Holy Spirit would not just fill this place, but it would be given room to fill each of our hearts, that we might be able to hear your voice speaking to us tonight. As we open your word, um, still the, the voices, the, the, the busyness of our hearts, 
and uh, may your voice be heard, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to illustrate what we're going to be talking about tonight, I want to share with you a story. Some of you may know about international reply coupons. International reply, reply coupons are, are, are it's sort of like a, a form of currency in that um, it's designed to allow, uh, allow postage to be purchased in other countries for return um, mailing. So let's say that I am going to mail you a letter in Italy, um, for example, and um, I don't have any way of sending a self-addressed stamp envelope for you to send it back um, because I can't buy Italian postage at the post office here. So I will instead, um, if Italy's a participating country, I'll instead buy an international reply coupon that will allow you to go to the Italian post office and purchase the amount of postage required to send a letter back to the United States. That's an international reply coupon. There's a, a, a fellow by the name of Carlo Pietro Giovanni who uh, began to realize that there was sometimes an exchange rate difference in this international postage, or the international reply coupons. In other words, he might be able to buy these coupons in one country for less than the postage in the, the other country would cost. So then he could change it for postage. The postage has cash value, so he could exchange the postage now for cash and earn an increase on his money. And so uh, this, uh, this postage system uh, was proposed as a way of investment. He promised a 50% return rate. Now this got people excited because you can only imagine if people were um, promised a, a 50% uh, return rate, there's Carlo Pietro Giovanni there, um, they, would, they would see there was nothing, they, they would stop at nothing to, uh, to be able to invest as much money as possible. They began mortgaging their homes, investing their life savings. A Boston uh, financial writer wrote that this could not be accomplished legally, a 50% return on investment. Carlo sued for libel and won $500,000 in damages. Um, the Boston Post uh, ran a favorable article about Carlo's uh, company and the 50% return. Below, below the article which the Boston Post ran was an advertisement for a, a, a savings account at a local bank which offered a 5% return on investment. A line formed at 6 a.m. the next morning at Carlo's investment office and thousands of Bostonians waited in line to give him their money. He collected three million dollars just in that day. Now that's three million dollars uh, in 1920 money, that would be $34 million today. He collected in cash on that one day. The story spread like wildfire and uh, people could not get their money to Carlo fast enough. The problem was that Carlo wasn't buying international reply coupons at all. Um, for the amount of money invested, there would have had to have been some 160 million IRCs in circulation. Uh, but only 27,000 existed. And um, Carlos was simply using the money of new investors to pay the exorbitant returns on the older ones. And uh, when the fraud was exposed and the company collapsed, investors lost $20 million. That was $1920. And uh, six banks collapsed. Um, and uh, Carlos's name became synonymous with financial schemes that rob Peter to pay Paul. In fact, his um, full name 
was actually Carlo Pietro Giovanni Guglielmo Tobaldo Ponzi. And today we know it simply as a Ponzi scheme, right? Now, what would have prevented these people from losing everything? When I think of that, it's, it's a tragic story, people losing their homes, losing their investments, losing their retirement, their savings. But there's nothing, there's nothing more sad than making poor investments spiritually, maybe even thinking that we're going to get a good return. Um, there are two things, I think, that people could have known to be able to keep them from the uh, disappointment they experienced. One was where their money really was. It was enriching Ponzi and, and paying off the, uh, the new investors. The second thing they needed to know was the character of the man that they trusted. If they had known one or both of these things, they would have been spared the loss and spared the disappointment. So tonight we're going to be talking about the need to know, because I think we need to know. I think this is something that we can't just be hap, haphazard about or half-hearted about. I think we need to know a couple of things. And I like to make or to understand and to share the message in as simple a form as possible. Uh, I, I think sometimes we complicate things. I remember as a kid and, and thinking about, you know, I grew up in an Adventist home and, uh, and hearing about the last days and, and sometimes even being afraid of the last days. Now I know better. Um, I'm no longer afraid of the last days. But sometimes when I was a kid, I, I had fear in my heart. And, and it wasn't just because there was going to be persecution and I may be tortured or, or martyred or something like that. I was afraid that the last days would come and I wouldn't know what I needed to know. I mean, of all the things there is to learn, there's so much to learn in the Bible. And how do you know what you don't know and what you need to know? And if we're going to be called before courts or called before rulers or judges or whatever and called to answer for our faith, how can we be prepared for that type of a thing? And how can we possibly know the Bible? And I've come to realize that, that there's only really a couple of things we need to know. Now, I'm not saying that we don't need to study our Bibles. We'll get more into that as we go along this week. Um, but I'm convinced that God is going to prepare us for the things we need to know in our Bibles, and the answers that we need to give are going to be given to us. But there's a couple of things that we need to know. Tonight we're going to be looking at two things. I'm going to make it really simple. Only two things that we need to know as we look at them tonight at least. Two things that we need to know to be, to be saved. Who we really are is the first one. And um, who our Savior really is is the second one. And I am convinced that we can make it simple. We can keep it simple. We need to know who we are, and we need to know who Jesus is. We need to know those two things. And if we know those two things and make appropriate decisions based upon that knowledge, um, we can be saved in God's eternal kingdom. And that's my desire, and I pray that it's your desire as well. So let's just start. And um, let's start looking at the first one, who we really are. The problem is that um, we might say, well, I know who I am. You know, I'm Chester Clark the third. Um, I know quite a bit about my background, probably more about my background than most other people know about me. Um, how, how can we say that we don't know who we are, that we need to know who we are? Uh, we need to know more about us. Well, the reason is very simple. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, that's my heart. And I suspect that, um, that it's your heart as well. Um, the heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. 
Um, who can know it? We, get, we don't know our own condition. We often don't know our true selves. I grew up in an Adventist home, and I'm very thankful to have grown up in an Adventist home. You know, sometimes um, I find myself, even as a pastor, listening to the testimonies of people who have, who have, um, who have had uh, miraculous conversion experiences, and they've been saved from the deepest, deepest depths of the pits of hell, and they've come to, uh, to know Jesus as their Savior, and they, they have a testimony to give. And I think, well, wouldn't it be nice to be able to give that kind of a testimony? Um, I, I, I realize, though, that I honestly do believe that the grace of God that keeps a young person from going down that path is just as powerful as the grace that saves a person from that life of sin. And so I have no really regrets of I have no regrets for growing up in an Adventist home with, with parents who loved the Lord and who were mission-minded, um, who were doing church planting, working in what we called in those days, way back in the early 70s, they called it dark county um, work, um, where there weren't churches and planting churches. And I, really, I have no regrets for the, the life that I lived. In fact, as a young person, as a young person, I, I loved Jesus a lot. Um, when we moved from Loma Linda, uh, my, my dad finished dental school there, and um, uh, my mom had been food, food service director for the university and hospital. And um, I had a, a habit, even I was only four years old, but early in the morning, my parents would always put on KSGN, the radio station there. I guess it's still going, I don't know. But um, the Adventist radio station at 6 o'clock in the morning would play the um, Alexander Scorby, you know, read your Bible through in a year. And in 15 minutes a day, they would play Alexander Scorby with his nice accent reading the Bible. And I remember even as a kid uh, listening to that early in the morning. I guess, yeah, those little kids do wake up early, don't we? Um, um, some of you parents know all about that. And um, I remember listening to that. In fact, that was one of the things that I remember being very disappointed about when we moved into the middle of nowhere in Arkansas. Um, the, the, the Alexander Scorby didn't come on, and neither did, um, neither did the, uh, um, your, your, your story hour. Um, that was really disappointing. Um, but, you know, somehow, um, even in those days, the, um, the, the mailing lists of, of uh, charitable organizations, I guess, followed us to Arkansas. So we still got the Pathways or some sort of little magazine that KSGN sent out that had the Bible reading plan. And when I was about five years old, I started reading that plan for myself. My parents gave me a Bible I was already reading, and, and it was sort of a modern English Bible, and I started reading, and I just wanted to get up. My, my, um, my parents... Um, had a, a regular habit of having personal devotions in the morning, and I saw that, and I wanted to be like them. So, so I was getting up to read my, my Bible. I, in fact, I made my own little study in, in my closet, which seemed huge to me at the time. It was actually only a regular closet, but I made underneath the hanging clothes, I made my own little study of the lamp, and, and, um, and that's where I read my Bible. Um, my parents still have a... a um, a letter that I wrote when I was about five years old to KSGN, um, thanking them for the magazines we were still receiving. And it's all spelled very phonetically because I didn't know how to write really, but it's just scribbled in a little like, you know, preschooler scrawl. And um, on that letter I taped, um, I didn't know they copied it. That was sort of an intrusion of privacy, um, but I only learned that later. I taped either a nickel or a quarter as my offering that I was sending to KSGN, and all our friends in Loma Linda heard when they read it on the radio and so forth. And, and um, I say all this simply to say that I had an upbringing with the love of Jesus in my home. 
and, uh, and in my heart. In fact, I, I like to preach, and um, I was, at that time, I was still too young to have self-awareness, you know, when you, because later I got very, very shy, and preaching became very, very difficult. I mean, I didn't, um, it was something when I realized I was called to the ministry, I had to really struggle with, but um, when I was only five or six, my grandma would take me to the nursing home on Sabbath afternoons, and I would preach, and they put me on a chair, and I would preach, and um, I mean, I wasn't really preaching, I was telling the story of, um, you know, Daniel in the lion's den or uh, Joseph in Egypt, and they're probably pretty much verbatim from uh, my Bible friends um, because they'd been read to me so many times. In fact, even while we're still in California, my parents got so tired of reading to me, my Bible friends, that they simply recorded the book, uh, books, and I would just put the tape in and, and play it, and that's how I, I, I pretty much memorized them. So I preach, and, um, and I love Jesus. And I loved his word. And I'm thankful now, still thankful now, that um, much, of, much of God's word was sort of stored in my memory um, during those formative years. Um, but just because, you've, just because you've loved Jesus as a child, just because you've um, been raised in a godly home, doesn't mean you have a personal walk with Jesus. And um, I, don't, I can't point to any time in my life where I specifically made decisions to wander from him. We'll talk some more about my, my, um, some of my life choices maybe as we go along. But I know that there came a point in my life as a teenager where I really didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus. I, I taught the adult Sabbath school lesson in our little church plant. Um, you know, I still studied my Bible. I still, had, I still had devotions, I think, on a pretty regular basis. But, um, but there were things in my life that weren't right, and there were things in my life that I, I, was, um, I was allowing to the world and sin to, uh, to, to displace uh, my love for Jesus. And um, I'll have to say that I really wasn't aware of it. And this is where it comes back to our verse. Um, the, heart of, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I didn't know that I had a problem. That's the problem. You see, it's not, so, it's not so bad to have a problem. The real bad thing is when you have a problem, you don't know you have a problem. And that's where I was. And um, it came to the point where, where I was actually, um, I was a teenager, and uh, I was actually about 18 years old, and I was finishing up, it was my last year of high school, and I was doing some training as a, as a Bible worker and doing some... Um, doing some Bible work on the side, and I really, you know, I wanted to work for God. I, I didn't have any intention of being a pastor at this point, I, although I had some convictions about it, but I was intending to go into medicine. And, and, um, and when I, um, I heard a sermon, I heard two sermons. It was, it was amazing how they, the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit always works in different ways, doesn't He? And these two sermons were, one was a, a, a Wednesday night and one was a Friday night. And they were presented by two brothers um, who I had a lot of respect for um, and were somewhat like spiritual mentors to me. And um, I don't remember which came first or exactly what, but I remember the two sermons. And one of them was this passage here, the parable of the two sons from Matthew chapter 21. And let's just turn there, if you would, open your Bibles if you have them. Um, pull out your smartphones if you've got those. Um, I will trust that you're looking at the text and not texting. Um, so, uh, Matthew chapter 21 and verses 28 through 31, we find that 
Um, this is a very short uh, parable that Jesus gave to the Jewish leaders. They've been trying to entrap him. They've been trying to have him um, say something that will incriminate him. Um, so far, unsuccessfully, he always asked them questions in return to theirs. And now he asks them a question that's very, very pointed. And um, he, uh, he is, it's at the end of this parable, verse 28, Matthew chapter 21 and verse 28. But what think ye? A certain man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Which of the two of them did the will of his father? And they say unto him, The first. Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. Now, this sermon that I heard on that evening, it, it really began to um, speak to my heart. And, and um, there, the message was very simple. The message was along these lines, and I'll just try to make it very clear, uh, very, very simple and very succinct. There's a great danger in being a good person. Some of you may have read the, the, one of the business books of the year a number of years back, uh, um, Good to Great, I believe was the title. And the premise of the book is that um, being good stops many companies from ever becoming great because they're not motivated. And uh, they don't need change. They don't look for change. And um, this is the premise of this passage. The premise of this passage is that good people are in grave danger, even greater danger than bad people. And, and what, what, if we could summarize what Jesus said to these religious leaders... He said to them that the publicans and the harlots, the, we would say that's the King James language, the, the mafia bosses and the prostitutes in today's vernacular, the mafia bosses and the, and the prostitutes are closer to the kingdom of God than the religious people that sit in the pews on Saturday or Sunday morning. I hope that's not too harsh. I think that's really what he said. And, 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 and the Pharisees were very offended about this. In fact, when he asked them which of the two is doing the, the, the will of the Father, they, they said unto the first, and if you read in the Desire of Ages, I believe it is, we, we have a little insight into that. As soon as it came out of their mouth, they realized they had passed condemnation on themselves. They realized that they, they were being fingered as this other group that were, that were uh, the good people. And when Jesus said that the publicans and the harlots will enter the kingdom of God before you, they were incensed. They were offended. I mean, they paid their tithes very carefully. You know, they'd take their, 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 their herbal seeds and they would count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine for us, one for God. Very, very carefully. They were faithful. But Jesus said that these other people are going to enter the kingdom of God before you. It didn't make sense to them, and it doesn't really make sense to me unless I understand. The only way I can explain this passage is if I understand that there's great danger in the church of being lost while thinking you're saved. And, you know, some people have come to me and they've said, you know, I'm just so discouraged because I'm such a bad person and, and I, I'm such a sinner, I don't, 
I don't, I don't really believe that God can save me. And I said, praise the Lord. Because you're so much closer to salvation now than you were when you thought everything was fine. There's this huge step that God has to take us past from thinking everything's okay when it's really not to realizing we're lost. And when we realize we're lost, we're that much closer to being saved. I came to the conclusion that I'd rather be lost knowing I was lost than be lost thinking that I'm saved. This is the problem. I want to tell you, I'll be honest with you, friends, tonight. Can I be frank? This is the problem with watered-down Christianity or watered-down Adventism, which just tries to keep people in the church, even our young people in the church. I want them. God knows I want them in the church. But I don't want them in the church thinking they're saved when they're really lost. I'd rather them know their spiritual condition. And uh, we need to be careful that we don't try to lower the standard to make people comfortable because we're doing the devil's work when we do that. And we, we will be responsible for that great disappointment. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said that many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we thought everything was fine. And he will say, I never knew you. And these are the passages that really, really um, got to me as, as I was a teenager there, 18 years old. Um, Christ Object Lessons, page 280, says this, There is more hope for publicans and sinners than for those who know the word of God but refuse to obey it. And this is the, this is the condition of the first son. You remember the first son, um, he, he had, a, 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 or which son? But if you, the, the first son, it says, um, s- said, I will not. Um, he knew, didn't he? He knew that he was in rebellion against his father. The second son, he had a profession of compliance, didn't he? but he did not have an um, actual experience. Christ Object Lessons, continuing on, or just before this, in page 279, says, the, pro- the, promise of diso- the, excuse me, the promise of obedience they appear to fulfill when this involves no sacrifice. Mm. But when self-denial and self-sacrifice are required, when they see the cross to be lifted, they draw back. Thus the conviction of duty wears away, and known transgression of God's commandments becomes habit. The ear may hear God's word, but the spiritual perceptive powers have departed. The heart is hardened, the conscience seared. And so this this passage really um, spoke to my heart when I was an 18-year-old, and I started to have some second thoughts about my true spiritual condition. And let me tell you, friends, that's not a bad thing. It really isn't. Um, Remember, there are two things we're looking at tonight that we need to know in order to be saved. The first one is to know ourselves. And um, 
that was something that I was beginning to have a little bit of an understanding of. Psalm 139, 23 and 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. David, this is David's prayer. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And I want to say that there's an implicit permission included into this, in this statement, isn't there? There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a permission for God not only to show us um, the things that are in our lives, but a, a willingness to be ready to change when God shows us those things, right? This is what David's prayer is. Search me, try me, know my thoughts, see if there be any wicked way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. This is a, this is a powerful prayer that David prayed. Why did David pray this prayer? Because David wanted to know himself. Two things that we need to know in order to be saved. We need to know ourselves. We need to know Jesus. David wanted to know himself. And there's only one way I'm going to know myself because my heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The only way I'm going to know myself is if the Holy Spirit is able to show me things in myself that I need to be converted on, sacrifices that I need to make, um, things that I need to surrender to Jesus so that He can put something better in its place. I want, to, I want you to look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. I like this passage because it shows us that this isn't really just a passive um, experience that we have uh, where we, in, we ask God to search us. That's David's prayer. I think it's an appropriate prayer. I, I pray this prayer, and I hope you pray this prayer as well. But 2 Corinthians chapter 13, the very last chapter of of 2 Corinthians. By the way, just a little bit of biblical trivia. Many of you may know or may be news to you that 2 Corinthians is really 3 Corinthians. Um, and that's because in the book we have of the Bible of 1 Corinthians, Paul references a letter that he's already written to the Corinthians. And um, so it's really the third letter, at least the third letter, that he's written to the Corinthians. But uh, for some reason, these are the ones that God shows to have preserved for us as part of the biblical canon. So 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, and this has, shows that we have a part to play. And I'm reading from the King James here um, tonight. It says, Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not that your, uh, your own selves have uh, Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. And this word reprobate is sort of an old English word. And so I've looked it up in the dictionary, and it simply means a depraved, corrupt person. It means a depraved, corrupt person. This is what Paul's saying. Look, we have an obligation, a responsibility to examine ourselves. Now, we just saw that David prayed the prayer, search me, O God, right? But now Paul is saying, examine yourselves if you're really in the faith. There should be some sort of objective measurement or standard by which you can see, am I really walking with Jesus today? And this is what Paul concludes with. He says, either Jesus Christ is in you, or you are a depraved, corrupt person. There's not a halfway ground. It doesn't matter if you're a church member or not. That's not, that's not, it doesn't say anything here about church member or not, right? It doesn't say um, either Jesus Christ is in you or you're growing in the church and you're on the way to being that way or, or you're a depraved, corrupt person. It's either or, isn't it? It's one or the other. Either Jesus Christ is in me today, I've I am walking in a, in a converted experience with Him today, or I am lost as a depraved, corrupt person, just as lost as any sinner with any of the evil sins that even the church and the world might frown on. That's what Paul says. We have a responsibility. And, and I believe that this is actually something that we need to do on a regular basis. 
that we need to ask God, search, search me, O God, know my heart. But then we also need to, to spend some time as we read the Word of God, we apply it to our hearts. And we say, Lord, am I willing? Am I? And if I'm not willing, make me willing. I'm willing to be made willing to follow the Word of God. Um, this is sort of off the subject um, because I could spend a whole time just here on spiritual tests. By the way, let me just say, this is, these are not to be applied to the people around you. That defeats the purpose. When we examine ourselves, if we want to have find ways to examine ourselves, the Bible, I think, reveals some of those. And one of them is the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit are a simple, easy test for me to see whether I'm walking Jesus. Desire of Ages, page 676, I believe that's the right page. It says, when we live by faith in the Son of God, the fruits of the Spirit will be seen in our lives. Not one will be missing. So therefore, when, uh, how do I apply that test to myself? Well, when I'm getting angry and impatient, I need some, I need some quality time with Jesus because that's an indication. You know, we have these fig leaves. I think of, I think of Balaam pursuing the princes, right? And the, um, he had several signs that something wasn't quite right, didn't he? I mean, really, he was a little thick-headed. We can't, we, we can't understand how. Um, these things could happen. First, God told him no. And then when they came back, God, he said, well, let me see if God's changed his mind um, because he wasn't surrendered to what God's will was. And um, then when he started off on the, dock, on the donkey, you know, things were going wrong, wrong, veering off. By the time the donkey started talking, you would think that Balaam would have gotten the idea that maybe something's wrong here, some supernatural, God's trying to get my attention. Um, but he was so bent on doing what he wanted to do that even the donkey talking to him didn't get his attention. And sometimes we're like that, aren't we? And um, so there, there, we, won't, we won't spend a lot of time on that because it's too big of a topic. But suffice it to say that we can, as we study God's Word, He will show us tests that we can see whether or not we are living with Jesus. Because Jesus, the, the text here says, examine yourselves, um, whether you be in the faith. And if God says it, He obviously knows there's a way that we can do it, and He will help us with that. Councils on Stewardship, page 135. Satan is inventing everything that he can possibly devise in order to keep men thoroughly occupied. Now just stop there. Who's inventing? <laughs> I mean, I don't I don't, I'm not on a, on a great conspiracy theory here or anything, but you see that, you know, the <laughs> logo with the um, bite out of it. Um, <laughs> I'm not talking about Apple, but I wonder sometimes if technology isn't some of the things that Satan is inventing to keep us busy. Now, we haven't finished the statement yet, but just keep that in mind. Satan, no, please, don't get me wrong. I use technology. I believe in technology. We should use it as a tool to spread the word of God. But think about your own life, because this is what this statement's about. Satan is inventing everything that he possi can possibly devise in order to keep men thoroughly occupied so that, why does he want to keep us busy? So that they shall have no time to consider the question, how is it with my soul? We need time. 
We need time in the Word of God. Um, we need time in prayer if we would know the condition of our hearts. Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15 says this, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who is also of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Listen, friends, when you see your need for salvation, when you and I recognize our need for a Savior, when we realize how great a sinner we are, that's when Jesus is the closest to us. That's what He says. Well, at least when we see it and are repentant about it. Um, until we realize that, we don't, we don't have um, much hope of the next steps in salvation. Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye who are, what does He say? Weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That means we realize we have a load that we can't carry. And I just want to make this very clear here before I move on. Um, as long as I think that I have a good chance of being saved just by trying harder and doing better and being better, I'm never going to experience the salvation that Jesus has to offer me. It is only when I come to the point where I realize I'm hopeless. I can't be saved. I'm lost, except unless there's a miracle. That's when I can experience what God wants to give us. Um, a couple of other of my favorite um, quotations from the Desire of Ages, I don't have them in front of me, but I'll try to, I'll try to share them with you. Um, uh, I think it's page 300. There are, one of them's on page 300, one of them's on page 329. The weaker and more helpless you know yourself to be, the stronger you will become in His strength. The greater your burdens, the heavier, the, the, the heavier your burdens, the greater the rest found in casting them upon the burden bearer, something along those lines. Um, the other one says, the Lord can do nothing towards the recovery of man until stripped of all self-sufficiency, until convinced of his own weakness and stripped of all self-sufficiency. He yields himself to the workings of the Holy Spirit on his heart. Then he can receive the gift that heaven is waiting to bestow. From the soul that feels his need, nothing is withheld. So the Lord can do how much? Before. But he can do everything after. We have all of heaven at our disposal afterwards, but God can do nothing until we realize our need. And so... I really, I really have, am convinced that this first step to know ourselves is so vitally, vitally important. So very important if I'm going to be saved. Oh, there it is right there. I forgot I had added that in here. Um, from the soul that feels his need, nothing is withheld. He has unrestricted access to him in whom all fullness dwells. What a wonderful promise this is from the book um, Desire of Ages. Now, as I, as I um, listen to these two sermons, one on um, the parable of the two sons, one on Matthew chapter 7, the house built on the sand, and many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, um, 
I began to realize something as an 18-year-old Adventist kid who had been baptized and taught Sabbath school lessons and was giving Bible studies at that time. I began to realize I was lost. I hadn't realized it. I hadn't really been aware. I mean, I, I guess I knew some convictions that I wasn't, I was bearing. And, but I began to realize that I was lost. And I want to just share with you very, very briefly um, my experience. Um, That, that night, after one of those sermons, it must have been the Wednesday night sermon because it was during the week, and um, I went, went home to, I was actually staying with some friends, I went to their house and I had some roommates down in the basement where I was doing Bible work, and, and um, I was really convicted, I was really convinced that all this time I had been, I had been professing but I didn't really have a relationship with Jesus. And what was going through my mind, I knew, I knew a lot about the Bible, remember. I mean, it wasn't like I was just a novice. I, too, too much is given, much is required, right? And I knew in the back of my mind, I said, you know, it's not like I didn't know any better. All this time I've been living a, life, living a lie, and I was really, really convicted that I needed a conversion experience or a reconversion experience, whatever. I needed to be saved, and I wasn't. I didn't know Jesus. I mean, it was just, I was, I was living a form. It was a ceremony. I had everyone fooled, and even myself, <laughs> until now. The Holy Spirit had sort of gotten through to me, and, and I said, I, I knelt by my bed that night, and I prayed a prayer, and... Um, it was, a, it was a hard prayer to pray in, in many respects, although I don't remember at that point being at all emotional about it, but I just remember my heart being so, I just wanted to have a change. I wanted something different. I knew I needed something I didn't have. And so I prayed this prayer. I said, God, I don't know what it's gonna take because I know so much, but I'm not converted. So I said, God, whatever it takes, I'm willing to give you permission to do it. Um, now, in the back of my mind, I'm an 18-year-old kid. I enjoy, you know, activities and, uh, and physically involved in sports and outdoor stuff. I mean, working with my hands. I just enjoy um, doing a lot of things, you know. And um, the worst thing that could possibly happen to me and going through my mind at the time was that some terrible accident would take place and um, I would be left a, a, a quadriplegic. <laughs> I mean, that was just, that was what was honestly on the forefront of my consciousness as I prayed this prayer. I said, God, whatever it takes. I'd rather have something terrible happen or something that you see fit happen to save me. Even if it meant, what, what is this life, you know, 70 years or whatever, and be saved for eternity. That was my prayer, and, and I prayed the prayer, and I, 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 I meant it. But even though I was sincere and I was really convicted and my heart was sort of burdened at the time, I'll be honest with you, as I'm praying, I'm praying that prayer, and I keep praying. And Have you ever prayed and you felt like your prayers just never went beyond the ceiling? They are just sort of bouncing around in the room. Have you ever prayed that kind of prayer where you just, it's like, it's like you're talking to a wall, and there's no sense, you have no, 
And as I'm praying there that night, I remember I had this growing sense of God doesn't hear. It was just, and, and, and then it went through my mind, well, since I know so much, I mean, remember, I was preaching when I was six years old, right? I mean, I know the Bible, I know all the stories of the Bible. I, I think I could, I could win any, find, your, find this text the fastest, you know, when I was in vacation Bible school or something. I mean, I, I knew so much, and yet I had been so long living a complacent, lukewarm life. The thought now began through, going through my mind, maybe, maybe I've grieved away the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's too late for me because I've known so much, you know? It's not like I'm just, uh, it's not like I just heard the gospel for the first time. And, and um, that's a pretty terrifying thought, you know? Um, before I go, let me just stop right there in case someone walks out now. Um, <laughs> if you're thinking that thought, it's probably not true. But I, I was thinking that thought, and I couldn't, I, I couldn't pray any harder, but it just seemed like there was no, I had no peace for sure. And um, my roommates had gone to bed, and um, I had, um, oh, well, there was no way I could fall asleep. I was just terrified. In fact, even going through my mind as the early morning hours ticked on and, and the night passed, going through my mind was the idea that what's the point of living? if you know you're going to be lost. And, I mean, obviously, you know, I love my family, I love my parents, I love my friends, but, um, and I wouldn't want them to be lost because I took my life for something, but at the same time, the longer I live, the more I'm just going to have an evil influence. I mean, the thought went through my mind. I'm not sure if this is a, a apocryphal statement by Ellen White or not. Um, she, she, she says this. She says something along the lines that no one, you know, when we get to heaven, no one's going to have a crown without any stars in it if we're no one will be saved alone she says that okay so when we when we're if we're saved at last someone's gonna be saved because of our influence well the the converse concept may be apocryphal um but the idea was going through my mind well if i'm lost i'm gonna some people are gonna be lost because of me and i wouldn't want any more people to be lost than necessary you know um, so, I mean, these are heavy. I was serious. This was what was going through my mind. I was horrified. I was terrified. Remember, in the morning, I met a friend and took one look at me and said, "What's wrong with you?" I was white as a sheet and hadn't slept a bit during the night. I remember I went to take a shower. It's maybe too much information, but I'm taking a shower and I. I'm kneeling in the shower, crying my heart out. Um, but it was no use because there was no answer. I had no response. You know, sometime that next day that, um, I'm going to try to make it as short as possible. Um, it was sometime that next day when I um, actually had a first recollection of the prayer that I had prayed the night before. It dawned on me that I had prayed God, I would given God permission in my prayer to do whatever it took. And um, I wondered if maybe he was answering my prayer instead of 
not answering my prayer. I found out there's a couple of things I discovered during that experience. One was that that next day, any time I was reading God's Word, this absolute oppressive blackness and hopelessness and despair would be lifted. I would just be reading the Bible. And when I read the Bible, I mean, I had this peace. As soon as I put it down, I was left in terror. By the way, the spirit of prophecy had the same effect. I read in the book Steps to Christ because that was the first book I turned to. I mean, there's got to be some hope for me, right? And I, I had a Steps to Christ there, and I'm reading Steps to Christ, and it says, I don't remember the page number, but it says there in Steps to Christ, it says, um, every longing of the soul after righteousness is evidence of the Holy Spirit's working upon the heart. Now, let me tell you, I wanted evidence of the Holy Spirit's working on the heart. So I started claiming that as a promise. So as I read the Bible, I read the Spirit of Prophecy, and as I claimed promises, I had relief from that terrifying, I can't call it a feeling, it was just oppressive. Um, and as I began to realize this, and as I remembered the prayer that I prayed the night before, I began to realize it wasn't God that was afflicting me. I began to, and I still, I, these are, this is something I guess I'll just have to ask the Lord when I get to heaven someday. Um, I really believe that what happened is the Lord allowed me to see what sin really does. I need a hatred for sin, by the way, which comes as I know myself and I know Jesus. But um, my problem was that I loved my sins. And um, I didn't want to give them up. And yet my sins caused what seemed to be an eternal separation between the Father and the Son on the cross. That's what we call the second death, right? The second death is death. It's no different physically than any other death. But spiritually and emotionally, the second death is death without hope. The death, it, it, second death is a death knowing that things could have been different, but they weren't because of my decisions. And Jesus experienced the second death for me on, the, on Calvary's cross so that I don't have to experience that. I, there's no excuse for any of us experiencing the second death. Because Jesus experienced our second death. And what that was, it was an extremely oppressive, hurtful, hateful blackness that surrounded his soul and extinguished all hope. And I think that maybe somehow as, as God allowed his presence to be re, maybe somehow removed from my life, the devil went in and tried to discourage me. By the way, the devil convicts of sin. Holy Spirit and the devil both convict of sin. The difference is the, the devil convicts of sin and tells us we're hopeless. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and tells us there's a, sin, there's a Savior that's greater than our sin. Amen. I really believe that. I don't believe that I experienced a second death. I'd be dead. Um, <laughs> because that, the, the, literally, the emotional pain killed Jesus. I don't think the fire is the concern in the last days. I believe there is fire. But the, the second death is not, the thing to worry about is not the physical suffering. 
it's the mental anguish of being separated from God. We, we haven't experienced that. We've never experienced that. Only Jesus has experienced it. He tastes death for every man. Jesus tasted that death for me and for you. And, and I began to realize that there was a really high cost of low living, that, that, the, the, that sin, no matter how innocuous and, and uh, you know, commonplace and even, even acceptable in the church it is, sin is exceedingly hateful because it separates me from God. And let me tell you, that's a terrifying experience to be separated from God. Jesus knows it. We don't know it. Um, but as I claimed the promises, I spent time in the Word of God. I began to realize that God still loved me, that there was evidence the Holy Spirit still working in my heart. And I gained the victory over that, um, I guess you would say, oppression of the enemy. And I tell you, that really was a transformative experience for me. Sometimes I sort of wish I could have it on a more regular basis. I mean, that sounds terrible. <laughs> but somehow, because I'll tell you, I had, there was, I wanted to run as far away from anything that didn't please God or that anything that was remotely sin as I possibly could. There wasn't a matter of me trying to walk a line as close as I could. Listen, I wanted I wanted to be as close to Jesus as possible and as far away from sin as possible. And I need that on a regular basis. Now, thankfully, we don't have to have that experience on a regular basis to have Jesus work those, those um, experiences in our lives. Um, know ourselves and to know God. Unfortunately, our, our ideas about God are usually formed from... What time am I supposed to stop? Okay, ten minutes. Our ideas about God are usually formed by ungodly influences. Um, we have to remember that the devil has been on a 6,000-year smear campaign about God's character. Um, parents, authority figures, even governments um, form the way we understand who God is and His relation to us. But God does not have the flaws and the failings of our even good parents. Uh, God is not defined by the hypocrites in the church. If we want to know who God is, we have to spend time on a personal basis, one-on-one, -on -one, first person to know Him for who He really is. And so 1 John 4 and verse 8 tells us God is love. But what is love? That's, that's sort of a, a, an overused and abused term today, isn't it? Desire of Ages, page 21, says to know God is to love Him. John chapter 3 um, is a story of Nicodemus, and we'll just spend a few moments there here as we look at what it means to know God. John chapter 3, and um, the story of Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night. He is, um, he is seeking to find the answers to that void that he has in his own experience, in his own life. He's a religious person. He's a good person. He's a church-going person. He's even respected in the church. You would call him the head elder probably. Um, he's, he's just that kind of a person. Um, he's he's he, not just the head elder. He's probably the dean of the seminary and a few other things. You know, I mean, this, this is a very religious man. And Jesus wants to know, Jesus seeks to do two things with Nicodemus. First of all, you'll notice that he seeks to help Nicodemus know himself better. And secondly, he seeks to help Nicodemus know God better. John chapter 3, we see here this interchange, and we'll just 
we'll just pass over it since we don't have much time. But John chapter 3, there's an interchange about being born again and, and Jesus sort of going right to the heart of Nicodemus' problem as a church-going person doesn't realize that he needs something. Um, he's coming here for intellectual um, affirmation or confirmation, perhaps some theological dispute that he wanted this rabbi to, to explain. But Jesus knew that really deep down in his heart, even though he was a religious church-going man, he had a void that only God could fill, and it was empty. And um, so Jesus goes straight to showing him who he is. And, and Jesus, I mean, Nicodemus realized that he was in the presence of one who could read his heart. And he realized that, God, that Jesus knew that there was something missing. He knew, but he, he tried to fill that missing thing with all of his accomplishments for God and for the church and et cetera, et cetera. And um, Jesus tries to show him who he is. But let's get down to verse 16. Um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh, we could spend a lot of time just on this one verse because I think it really explains to us the concepts, the dimensions of God's love. Um, the, the Bible says here that, whoso, that God so loved the world. And here you see sort of the scope of God's love, don't you? It's not just a few of the elite people. It's not just the church-going people. God loved the world, didn't he? That's how broad God's love is for all of humanity, that He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's the, the length that God is willing to go in order to save us. The, the length of God's love, love is that He was willing to give His only begotten Son. And then it says that whosoever believeth in Him. That's the, that's the, uh, the depth of God's love, isn't it? It reaches whosoever. It doesn't matter where we are in our Christian experience. It doesn't matter if we're an object, you know, um, person living on the streets with scars in our veins and, and more scars in our hearts and, 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 and condemned by the church, condemned even by the world, or if we're a lost person sitting on the pew that has nothing but lily white in our past, whosoever means whosoever. God's love extends to those depths. Whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's the height of God's love, isn't it? That He takes us with Him to be with him where he is, and that's the salvation that he offers for us. So Jesus is trying to show Nicodemus not only who he is, but who God is. And notice with me verse 17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I suppose, <coughs> I suppose that as Nicodemus, over the last few moments of this interchange with Jesus, has been listening to what Jesus had to say, I can only imagine that Nicodemus had some some, some, some prickles of conviction in his hardened heart. Even though he was a Pharisee who thought everything was right and he had done all the right things, I can only imagine that in this interchange, in those first 15 verses of the chapter, that Nicodemus is starting to say, wait, I, I could be lost? Heaven might be too pure for even me to enter? And, and you know, there's a temptation. The devil's always there to say, you know, you're such a bad person. And after showing Nicodemus who God was, Jesus goes on to say, the Son wasn't sent into the world to condemn the world. Don't you love our God? Amen. He wasn't going to leave Nicodemus for just even a moment longer thinking that he might be hopeless. God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. See, my friends, the good news as I study this tonight, the good news is that God can save Nicodemuses. 
the good people in the church. I suspect that's most of us. I'm thankful God can save everyone. But tonight what's important for us is that God can save Nicodemus. Because you or I, and I hope I don't make this as too strong of a statement or too sweeping of a statement because I don't know your experience, I don't know your hearts, I'm not going to pretend to. But you and I at some point in our experience are probably in the church but not in a saving relationship with Jesus. And we ought to be able to relate and praise God for His ability to save even Nicodemus. Romans chapter 8 and verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If there's anything that God... God has already demonstrated that there's no, there's no limit to what he will do or what he will give in order to save you. If He gave us His Son, He'll give us anything else we need in order to be saved. That's a promise that we can claim. He can even save churchgoers, good people. He can even save you and He can save me. I'd like to just spend a, a few moments in prayer tonight. Um, maybe tonight we could just spend some time in private prayer. Could we just spend about two or three minutes just between you and God and pray that this week God can lead us into a deeper, closer relationship with Him. Pray that this week we can know ourselves better. Maybe you can even pray David's prayer tonight. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Pray that God will also help us know Him better this week and that we can have a, a saving relationship with Him. Um, after a couple minutes of just silent prayer, um, I'll close. Let's kneel together as we pray. Father in heaven, tonight... We've just paused for a brief moment in your presence. We're giving you permission this week to speak to our hearts, to, to search our hearts, and to show us the things that might be still even separating us from a deeper experience with you, a closer walk with you. Lord, we want to know ourselves better, and we want to know you better by the end of this time together. Tonight, Lord... Your Holy Spirit's been working in my heart. I trust He's been working in each heart, those here under the sound of my voice or wherever they're listening. Tonight, Father, I just want to pray that, that we might be willing to let You work at Your perfect will in our lives. Lord, maybe we need to pray again that prayer that I prayed years ago, giving permission for you to do whatever it takes. We want to be saved in your kingdom. We believe you're coming soon. Lord, so I don't know what individuals are going through here, but you do. And I pray that you'll just lead each one to the perfect peace that passes all understanding as they have 
you filling that void in their life that nothing else can fill. I want that experience for myself every single day. I pray for that experience for those here tonight as well. Tonight, I just pray that we might know you more and love you more, that we might be your children, sons and God, sons and daughters of God, born again of water and of the Spirit, and ready to be able to share with others the amazing Savior that you are. Thank you, Lord, that you are a Savior who is greater than our sin. Thank you that you are able to save to the uttermost all who come unto God through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the promise that him that cometh to me I will in no wise, for no reason, cast out. Thank you for the promise that you're able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Oh, Lord, thank you for the promise that you're able to save even Nicodemus's. And, Lord, if tonight we've realized our need for you, I just pray that we wouldn't be discouraged, but that we would rejoice that we're one step closer to your kingdom. Because, oh, we need that on a daily basis. Teach us about ourselves. Teach us about you, I pray. And I thank you for all this in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.